Hello and welcome to the RPT Academy podcast. My name is Michael, and we are here tonight as part of my new podcast series, Journey Through the Realms, to discuss the Birthright D&D setting. Birthright was originally published in 1995 for the second edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, and it was originally designed by Rich Baker and Colin McComb. Joining me today to talk about Birthright is my guest, Brandis Stoddard. Brandis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very pleased to be here. Birthright has been an instant favorite of mine from 1995. I had just gotten into D&D two years earlier, and I don't know, I was was in the right place at the right time (laughs) mentally to love this thing forever so it's my nostalgia of like my early gaming career sure so brandis thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate it Uh, i'm a follower of yours on twitter i don't necessarily read everything you write but i see all the articles that you post but for anyone who's listening who may not be familiar with your work kind of drop your bona fides on me okay so my my real bona fide is that i just got an adventure published in candlekeep mysteries i i am so delighted about that it has totally just been been the delight of this past year. It, it got me through the unceasing horror of 2020 to get to write something for uh, official release by Wizards of the Coast. I've, I've written for uh, a bunch of companies at this point, and so like, you can you can also find my work with Tribality.com, where I have done writing and editing for Seas of Odari. And the forthcoming Under the Seas of Adari. I'm also, uh, I've also done some de- development work for Cobalt Press. I've done writing and design for uh, a bunch of companies. Uh, Write Publishing is one. And then also, outside of the D&D space, I've uh, written for uh, Pegasus Spiele, where I was one of the system designers for... Talisman Fantasy Adventures uh, RPG. That is, in fact, a tabletop role-playing game of the classic board game Talisman. Oh, okay. um, and uh, I've also written for uh, Rain 2. Uh, my wife and I got to write a, a setting for that, which was a very exciting. Uh, Gifts of Starlight, Gifts of Stone. So that that's a, a big part of my tabletop work. Uh, I've also done uh, writing and design in uh, live action role playing and in video games. Oh. Um, I, had a, I had a career in video games before that uh, dried up really fast, hmm. which is what video games do. Yeah. It's a tough industry. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you for sharing. Now, I, I've kind of mentioned in a couple of the other ones we've done of these that that part of my goal for doing this series is I really don't know a whole lot about a lot of these settings. I've said many times I've basically homebrewed my entire gaming career. Some of that from necessity, from that just because I didn't have the money, some of it didn't have access. So when I say like what my favorite setting is, that's only because I kind of know that one more than any of the others. And just before we started recording, I told you the two things I knew about Birthright, and I was wrong about one of them. So (laughs) I, I kind of, I view it as one of the more esoteric, lesser known, but that, that may be just my viewpoint. So I guess I'll start. So like, what is your Birthright origin story? How did you fall into it? So it really is as simple as they, they put like a marketing flyer for it, um, I think they call it a conspectus uh, for, for Birthright in one of the Forgotten Realms box sets I would have bought from Walden Books in 94 or 95. I, I got, you know, the, the Holy Trinity for of second edition for my birthday in 93. Um, I was turning 12. And so I very rapidly started exploring the realms because the realms whatever um and i loved it don't get me wrong i I was instantly in love with it i was reading all the novels i could get my grab little mitts on and um then i find birthright on the shelf at walden books because they got a, a pretty strong rollout and like the the story of its creation is fascinating 
I don't know how much you want to get into this, but like uh, I was listening to Tony DiTrelisi talking about creating Planescape at the same time as uh, they were creating Birthright. The two settings were coming into being at about the same time. So this is the setting boom of second edition D&D. And according to Dieterlisi, um, TSR was betting the farm on Birthright. Okay. A setting that now almost no one's heard of. All right. Now, I, I love Birthright. Do not get me wrong. I also love Planescape. These are two wonderful settings that taste weird together. Mm. But d according to Dieterlisi, the reason he was given so much creative freedom with the art is in part because Planescape was a little bit of an afterthought and they really thought birth, birthright was going to go huge. Now, in my opinion, it should have, mm -hmm. um, but it didn't necessarily catch on. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that its core activity loop is not part of, it was not completely tied in, I should say. It is, it's related, but it's not completely tied in to like standard D&D. I think a lot of fans didn't know what to do with it. So the conceit of Birthright is that your characters can be regents. That is to say, the ruling nobles, a monarch, a high priest, a guild master, uh, a court wizard, what have you, from first level. Because you have this bloodline, uh, this magical bloodline that connects you to the gods. Uh, there's a whole history where uh, like the, the first generation of gods destroyed themselves fighting the evil god, and the followers who were closest to them became second-gen gods, you know, the, the current gods in the setting. Then one ring out from that became the true bloodlines, another ring out from that became great bloodlines, and so on down to like, tainted bloodlines and so on. So that, that's their origin story for all these magical bloodlines and to rule anything in the setting of Birthright, the continent of Cerulea, the world of Ibernus, you have to have this bloodline. It lets you hold regency, which is the power of rulership and you call it an influence score, right? It's both, it's both a little bit of fate tampering because okay. you can alter some kinds of roles, not, not your average attack role, but some kinds of roles in the game. And, and it's also a measure of other things. It's, it's a lot of things at once, right? <laughs> and, and they're combining a lot of ideas into Regency. And so you, you've got this magical bloodline, which gives you cool powers that are useful at adventuring scale play, right? So... All of the, the kingship and, and, and domain rulership that's going on is still plugging into adventuring, like standard D&D adventuring. And the main difference is that the stakes are changed, right? You have a lot more to lose because you can play in this setting as like a, a you know, classic D&D murder hobo, but that would be weird. I don't know why you'd do that. And I think that that's the, the disconnect that made a lot of fans like not know what to do here. And I understand that. But like the, the setting as published is this one continent, Cerulea, which is broken up into major subregions. So you have Enwir and Kenasi and uh, Rajurik and Brecht and Vos. And so speaking very broadly, these are kind of, and we are sort of Western European. Kanasi is sort of Middle Eastern. It's probably the most one-to-one -one culturally. Okay. Um, but th th they're doing a bunch of Middle Eastern things very much in the Islamic golden age, right? And then Rajurik is roughly scandinavian it's it's pretty loose but you'd say it's roughly scandinavian more than anything else and then brecht is 
sort of your Netherlands through Germany through maybe some Denmark. It's very coastal parts of Northern Europe. Sort of an interesting thing to make sort of a whole region, but it's really well written, so I can't complain too much. Sure. And then, uh, like, they really want to do the Hanseatic League. That's what they're trying to get at historically, which is not something gaming touches on often outside of maybe Warhammer Fantasy. So it's great. It's really interesting. And then you have Vos, which is the, the is Russia and the Rus people and that whole deal, which is also really great. And if you're saying to yourself, goodness, other than Kanasi, this is stultifyingly Eurocentric, then you're right. It's true. That's super fair. But it was 1995. I don't know what to tell you. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I like to believe in my heart that if they'd had a, another 20 years of development time, and in, instead of like the whole thing getting shuttered when it wasn't selling in about 98, I think Watsi never really looked at it once they acquired TSR. Anyway, I, I like to think that if they kept developing it, they would have gone to some of the areas at the very edge of the map that just get basically name-checked and turned them into cognates for other parts of our real world and maybe even gotten to fully fantastical societies, Mm -hmm. right? So the things that I loved about it is that while it is very much based on real-world cultures and that has plenty of problematic things, especially for who gets cut out, right? The historical work that went into that sense of verisimilitude is very, very strong. They really deliver on the flavor in all of the, the people and the regions and the conflicts. The, the, like within a region, there's a really strong vibe connecting the names. Okay. And that's really nice to to just deal with in the game. Things feel consistent. So another big thing about the about the game is that that god of evil also spread his bloodline out among his own followers, right? When when he got blown up. So that means that they're bad guys with the same scale of powers as you have. Which means that this continent, which is broken up into these subregions, and the subregions is broken up into domains, the domains are broken up into provinces. There's sort of a fractal sense there. So the the domains mean you're going to have both ordinary, you know, you know magical kingship, but ordinary domains next door, or, and then also possibly super horrible, evil bad guys that are ruling their own domains next door. Okay. And they, they did this great job of designing the map so that no matter where you are, you're never more than about one province removed from a named bad guy who's ruling oh. a domain. Okay. And so each subregion has its own sort of scale of bad going from, well, okay, this is a problem, but is it a problem? You know, level of bad guy all the way up to that's pretty much Sauron. We can we can call it a day. That's Sauron. We gotta go. Like we can't cannot just walk into Mordor. You, you get that right. And, and so that's that's the scale of presence that someone like the Gorgon or the White Witch or the Magian or the Serpent wield in the setting. Okay. They have as much gravity as Sauron or Morgoth do in middle earth and that feels great it really shapes how everyone thinks and like the villains don't come out of nowhere is what i love about it okay right? it's it's beautiful that you you show the players the map and they know how far they are from a really bad problem that's that's kind of amazing so I can I can keep going in this vein, but I should really give you a chance to talk on your own podcast. I guess no. Well, again, you're the guest. You're the expert. I want you to to, to be able to talk and talk about the things that you find interesting. 
I'm again, because I am very, very uh, ignorant on this setting. I'm just trying to take this all in. And, you know, at its basest level, D&D was you go out, you kill things, and then you take their stuff. And then you go kill other things and take their stuff and, you know, ad nauseum repeat forever. And I'm trying to, like, in, in the early days, I started it with Redbox and then quickly went to first edition Advance because those were out at the same time when I jumped into it. And I remember that in the original versions of the game that I, I played, after a certain time, you could grow into having followers and maybe taking over a keep or a tower. And it would sort of at some point transition into sort of a political type of rulership game where that became an element. Sure. And so birthright, it's it's you basically start there, mm-hmm. and so I'm trying to figure out what is the the cycle of a, like your quote unquote typical adventuring day. Yeah, is it more of a political thing where okay. it's very heavily role played, where you're trying to build allies, or is there like mechanics behind rolling so that you got enough gold and you use that gold to buy mercenaries, and then that fight happens at a bigger different scale? I'm just trying to figure out what you would yeah. actually do at the t- at the table. Yeah, that's an absolutely great question. Okay, so it works like this. You, you, have, you have domain turns. A domain turn is a season broken up into three domain actions. One of the things you can do for your domain action is adventure. It means you set up your stewards and whatever to like run things while you go get something useful done that is your your adventuring scale play that's just one of the things you're going to do but the the core loop of of action is this domain action domain turn situation so there are a bunch of different types of actions you can take that involve establishing holdings so there's a bunch of different kind of holdings there's law holdings which is political and legal control in a province. There's guild holdings, which is business and espionage. There's temple holdings, which do what they say on the tin. And there's source holdings, which is your ley lines and arcane magic. Arcane magic comes from the land itself kind of flow, right? And so those, uh, so, so you start the game with a smattering of holdings based on whatever the regent you inherited from had. You're not starting from zero. There is a status quo in the world that is true at a particular day in the calendar. And then you receive what they had, what you know, your, your predecessor had then and build from there. All right, let me just and, jump in if you don't mind just to yeah yeah please um so like if i'm creating a character for birthright mm-hmm. is that random generation part of like where i start and what i start with or is that just purely okay. decision based yeah so you're going to work with the dm and the other players at the table to pick the part of the world that you're playing in and then you're going to zoom in to which specific domain that's that's the which kingdom out of this huge patchwork of, patchwork of kingdoms you are ruling, and then probably each player you want about four players, three is okay, five is okay, more or less than that. Things start to get a little hinky. I think that's true of any D and D game I've played, though, not just yeah, a, a little bit more so here than others. But I mean, yes, absolutely. Two and seven things get strange. Six is a little. Six is more okay in other types of D&D than it is here. That's a matter of opinion, though, not not really fact. You're then going to pick, okay, so I'm playing a fighter or a paladin or a ranger. I'm probably running the law holdings. I'm probably the monarch. Um, it's, it's fairly useful for the monarch to also be attached to the law holdings. Uh, then I'm playing the party cleric. I'm probably running the temples. Uh, I'm playing the the, the thief because it's second ed or bard. I'm probably running the guilds. Um, and then I'm playing the, the wizard. I'm probably running the sources. Um, there are there are mechanics in place as to in terms of uh, regency point yield off of holding value to 
push you in that direction. Okay. Um, but paladins gain some regency from temples and so on. Um, so um, you are probably replacing named NPCs in the setting books, right? Okay. You, you, you're fun you can functionally like cross them out of your setting book because they're your PC now. You're not you're not playing that character. You're inheriting from that character. Gotcha. Uh, because that that character is you know listed in the book as maybe a ninth level fighter or a, a third level wizard or whatever. Right. So that, uh, that was my other question is like a, the party dynamic where it was each one their own region and they actually fought against each other, but it sounds like they're more working together at least to start. Well, so the the box set has some some discussion of different campaign models because there isn't just one way to do this, right? Okay. Uh, it it actively supports models all the way from none of us are monarchs. We're all just in the employ of a monarch. Maybe one of us becomes monarch or regent of something um, in the course of play. That, that's totally valid. That's it's very adventuring first. And you get to like explore the world on single person scale before you have to deal with the concerns of rulership. Or you can be the monarch and the highest ranking people of other kinds in a particular domain. This is, pr this is probably the most intended model. Um, or you could maybe be um, the monarchs of a few neighboring domains. This is doable, but risky because you're giving the PCs the resources of multiple kingdoms to to wield cooperatively uh and then finally there's the competitive or, or demi-competitive model um because that kind of brings me to one of the other really interesting things about birthright it's a dnd setting that is used for a large number of uh play by email or play by post campaigns now in the 80s and early 90s, uh, play-by-email role-play was totally, well, sorry, play-by-mail email, nothing. Play-by-mail role-play was totally a thing. Um, and I think the trend line on that was, you know, moved more and more toward, you know, you're ruling a kingdom. And so actions are necessarily slow um, and responses are, are, are a bit slow. Mm -hmm. Well, this kind of does that for first principles. So there are totally forum games and play by email games where there are dozens or, you know, a hundred something players playing all of these different characters all across birthright. And so the, the games committee, because you need more than one human to process all of this is handling their domain actions and that they're you know competing to become the, the new you know ruler or, or, or competing to expand their holdings. The, the game doesn't necessarily continue until one person is holding all the cards. But um, yeah, like that's that's a, a valid model of of game. Okay. Um, so I think I distracted you, and we took two tangents. So let's, okay. let's circle back to the action like you talked about there were domain actions right. um what so, you actually so, do on your turn okay so please I, right i had to explain what holdings were to explain why you would create them and then level them up that's two of the things you do um you absolutely do raise units the money that you receive from running your kingdom uh is called gold bars it's about 2000 gold pieces they're just trying to make the numbers manageable and so you spend gold bars from taxation and whatnot to raise, to raise and fund armies to both defend your domain and, well, expand your domain. Also to, you know, expand your holdings to cast realm spells. Realm spells are the, the, the uber spells that uh, clerics and wizards get to cast that affect things on a you know, kingdom size scale. Um, all that kind of thing costs both regency and gold bars. And so these dual currencies that you're managing are become a huge part of play. Um, 
And there's other actions like espionage and um, uh, agitation. That is to say, trying to change how people feel about someone. You're raising or lowering the uh, loyalty of a province toward its region or toward someone else in that in that province. And you, you can absolutely like, like turn a domain action into war turns, which let you move units around and attack uh, other holdings and attack other armies and that kind of thing. And there's, there's a whole mass combat system that is based on basically index cards. They printed cards slightly smaller than index. Well, about this is playing cards, I should say. Playing card size. That is supposed to let you run mass combat. Uh, it works okay. Okay. Um, there, I'm not really sure anyone has yet made the perfect... Um, like tabletop role-playing game mass combat system uh, because this is, isn't it either, but it's okay. Okay. Um, it's it's no worse than any other. So it kind of sounds a little bit like a worker placement board game type of thing where like you try to build resources in different, you know, this, uh, you know, your temple holdings and your, uh, you know, like your sources and that kind yeah. of such. And then they both give you different values and you need some of each so that you don't get, you know, influenced negatively by your neighbors, that type of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it was not super consciously worker placement, but once you get a Lieutenant, which is an NPC that can take an extra, uh, domain turn for you. Yeah. It feels a lot, a whole lot like worker placement actually, for sure. And I'm not saying that's bad either. I'm just trying yeah, to yeah, put no. into terms I can kind of understand easier. And um, that... I, I don't know when worker placement board games became a whole thing. I, I haven't really like gone back and done the history of the, the board game renaissance, but it was not a term I knew at the time. Um, I, I learned that term many years later. Uh, so I, I don't know if it's specifically right, but it's close enough to help understand for sure. Mm-hmm. for sure so so yeah like the, all of those actions well most of those actions require uh, a, a, a dice roll you know a d20 okay. roll uh, against a target number to make the thing go forward and then you can you know sort of thumb that roll uh, thumb the scales of that roll by spending gold bars and regency points. That's sort of the fate control business I was talking about. The thing is, if you're affecting someone else, uh, someone else's province or an enemy has a holding in your province, they can spend regency to counter you. So you can create a bidding war, right? Okay. Uh, so, so maybe you're rolling a, a D20 and you need a 10 or better. That's not too bad. You could probably do that. But you think, well, it'd be really nice to finish this. I've got a lot riding on this right now. So I'm going to spend an extra five Regency. So I need, I need to roll five or better. You know what? I like my odds. But your, 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 your arch nemesis next door that has a you know piddly little holding in your domain and a, a whole lot of reason to make sure you fail, well, now they want to spend 10 Regency to to counter you so you went from needing a five or better to needing a 15 or better good luck bro you could still pass but i don't like your chances <laughs> you know yeah um, and, and so it's that it's that one for one deal like if someone's willing to throw resources at stopping you you might get stopped but you can kind of find yourself in a heads-up contest like that at any point okay so the, the question that comes to my mind at this point is I'm trying to get a sense of where the DM plays a role here because it seems like a right. lot of this is player-centric. They decide how they want to use their influence and their gold bars, and there's yeah. a role, and it's set. So like, are you as the DM like saying, okay, now a dragon's going to attack, and it devastates three, three places? Like, how do well, you... So, so uh, dra- dragons attacking is possible, though Cerulean dragons don't tend to be very active. But DMing birthright is actually incredibly intense because, I mean, the DM is always everyone else in the setting. It's just that you need to be tracking 
something about the resources of all those neighbors who hate you and would like to have what's yours. So they might be, you know, you know the DM is playing all of the neighboring regents, all the neighboring temple heads, all the neighboring guild leaders and so on. And so they might move in an army of knights and well, you've got a problem. And, and like the players have a lot of agency, but also the, their enemies have a lot of clear vectors of attack. And so you probably need to be prepared to slip into any of those NPCs at any moment and be thinking about their schemes and uh, how they're going to move those forward. Um, so it, it's actually a very DM-intensive sort of thing. Um, and you know, I've, I've been really focusing on a lot of the sort of mortal scale uh, interactions, but it's still a D&D &D setting. There's plenty of supernatural things to encounter, as well as those you know, evil monarchs, that, like evil monster scale monarchs I was talking about. So... Hmm. So one of the questions I have here to kind of prompt me if we need them, which I, again, I, you're, you're doing great, um, <laughs> is some of the unique features of the setting. And, you know, I think yeah. um, for better or worse, I'm kind of using Forgotten Realms as the baseline. Sure, I sure, think that's sure. the one that most people are most familiar with. Absolutely. And this isn't to say better or worse, but just trying to compare and contrast. And I know something you had mentioned here, and again, I remember reading it from the, the article you wrote, that some of the villains are those like singularly named entities, like the mm -hmm. Gorgon. So can you talk a little bit more about what that is and how that would work in the game? Okay, so uh, they are built about like PCs in, in a lot of ways. Like this is Second Ed. If you look at your um, Second Ed uh, Forgotten Realms content, like if you run across a humanoid, they might very well be like a fighter three or a, a paladin five or whatever. And they'll have an alignment and a race and a gender all tagged in there. Um, maybe other stuff, who knows? It sort of depends on the setting. Um, well, so like the Gorgon is I think a 20th level fighter and a 20th level wizard. And then he's got his bloodline stats on top of that. And so he has a true bloodline, which is the highest grade of bloodline of Azrai. Azrai is the god of evil, does all the evil crap. Um, and then he has all of his bloodline powers from being uh, a true a true bloodline scion of Azrai. That's S-C-I-O-N, you know, child love. Uh, it's a word that shows up a lot in setting. Um, and so he's allowed to get powers that the PCs can't ever get. Okay. Because those would turn the PCs into, you know, these Onshalian, these these uber-named monsters. Um, and so it's, there, there's kind of this fiction that it's fair. It's not fair. It's not meant <laughs> to be fair. Like, it's no more fair than, like, in Forgotten Realms, Zastam is a lich. He's going to eat your lunch if he shows up on your front step it's just how it goes right that's totally normal for like the npcs to get power species can't have sure um but you know th these these on show up at a bunch of different power levels like i was talking about so you've got like the spider um the spider's domain is right in the middle of um a bunch of you know normal-ish uh, human domains and it's just this really dense forest that you don't want to go in because there's you know lowercase s spiders there in addition to the capital s spider um, and so all these on shalian are, are transformed in named creatures but they might be you know ordinary to D, &D versions of them also in that province mm -hmm. right um so like uh, to use an example from a campaign I'm running right now, because during these pandemic times, uh, my wife and I started co-GMing a birthright campaign using a 5e rules adaptation um, that one of the players had already created and had been you know, running birthright games in. Um, 
where Oyema is set in Kanasi uh, using the domain of Mindusai, uh, which we have decided is sort of Armenian. Um, and so like they, they've got all these, you know, these neighbors and all of their neighbors are either really interesting allies or really interesting problems. So right to the south of them, there's an NPC domain called the Magian. Uh, this is basically like Asararak. This is this is an uber lich. He's a really bad problem. They don't know the PCs. Have no idea how they're going to solve. And he's expansionistic and totalitarian. It's a real bad problem. And like I, I can't wait to find out what they do about that. Right now they're paying him tribute every year. I think I think once a year. Um, and then there's um, a, a kingdom of humans uh, to the uh, northeast um, that has for several generations uh, had their kingdom chopped in half because right to the west of that, there's a kingdom of orogs. Um, technically, there are also orcs in birthright, but in practical terms, orcs don't show up. It's just orogs, which in other D&D settings are super orcs. Well, here there's super orcs too. They're just, it's the main kind of orcish creature that shows up. Um, in in the the uh, box, the, the Kanasi box set, box set's writing, because um, each region got its own box set uh, in addition to the core birthright box set. Um, the Orog kingdom is treated as being very like, uh, barbaric, kind of horrific. Um, it's kingdom full of bad guys. And we decided that we were going to rewrite that because it's um, frankly super racist, but it was 1995 and a lot of things look different then. So it doesn't look great in you know, the, the modern day. That, that aspect of it hasn't aged well. There are other things that have aged well. For D&D writing of 1995, Five, it's very sympathetic to the Orogs. It, it presents their motives as valid, even if they're also still bad guys. Um, and then continuing on around their borders, um, I, I don't think they actually share a border with the Lamia, but they're pretty close to the Lamia, another Onshalian. Um, then there's um, Ruanok, which is a whole uh, old domain of elves and these are like the only nice elves in all of Cerulea. In general, elves hate humans. Um, but really Ruanok, well, no, you really can't blame them. The humans totally came in and colonized their, their continent. They were super jerks about it too. Um, and they despoil the land. It's a whole thing. El there's a big theme of magic comes from unspoiled land and elves understand how to live in harmony with that and not and like increasing the population in a domain doesn't destroy its magical potential for elves humans not so much gotcha with humans and dwarves and halflings and orogs all not so much and gnolls there's also gnolls um but in Ruanok, they're it's it's basically Lothlorien, I guess. They're, they're well, it's probably more Rivendell. Anyway, they're really nice, and that's a big change. It's great. Um, the PCs in my campaign, one of the PCs is a half elf. Um, his elven, but well, both of his parents are in Ruanok, and so the PCs are in great terms with their neighbor, and that's really nice because they're not on great terms with any of their other neighbors. Um, then they have a neighbor to the south that we haven't done a lot with yet in the story. It hasn't mattered yet. Um, that neighbor has other problems. And that brings us back to the Magian, who, as I may not have actually gotten out, is an Onshalian. Um, he's an Onshalian who sailed from across the sea and started invading. And so he's only been here for uh, like six years. And he's already conquered one, one whole kingdom and he's got his fingers in all sorts of pies. So that's sort of the summary of what a normal start of campaign situation looks like. 
Okay. Um, uh, are you, so you mentioned the Orogs. We've talked about the like, Onshalian. Onshalian, yep. All right. Got closer than I would have thought. Um, yep, are there any other unique features of the setting that we haven't already touched on? Anything that's truly unique to Birthright? Um, so um, battle spells and realm spells are, are pretty unique to Birthright. So battle spells are uh, sort of standard D&D spells that have been scaled up to be a, a meaningful attack against, you know, 200 soldiers in the middle of a battlefield. You know, if a wizard casts the standard magic missile, well, at best, you, you know, anywhere from annoy to kill, like, one to three soldiers, right? right yeah. It's not really useful on, on a battle scale. But there's a, a battle spell called Reign of Magic Missiles that does exactly what you think it does. And it does enough damage to inconvenience a whole unit. Uh, most units wouldn't be wiped out by it unless they were already badly damaged, because most units can take, uh, you know, two to four points of damage. Um, and then th that also includes there's also you know, battle spells that are buffs. Um, the fireball spell is actually a battle spell in its own right, if I recall correctly. Um, and so there's other things like that. So you use these during, you know, mass combat. Then there's realm spells, which are the really big deal, and you have to have sort either temple holdings or source holdings to to power those. And those might like charm a, an enemy's lieutenant, but you didn't like get close to them and cast charm person from within range you're sitting back in your castle and you cast subversion and now their lieutenant works for you. Well, that's freaking great. And that kind of, that kind of thing um, is, you know, one called Legion of the Dead, which creates a, a, a unit of undead soldiers on the spot. Um, there's ways to rain down destruction on a whole province with a spell. There's probably something like 30-ish realm spells uh, the next next sort of big concept is the Shadow Realm. It's the Shadowfell that we started seeing in 4th edition D&D pretty much line by line. There are not really any significant differences between the Shadow Realm and the Shadowfell, aside from uh, a few syllables in the name, and the fact that in Cerulea, all halflings come from there. Halflings are just native to there. It doesn't make them evil or creepy it just makes them halflings interesting they fled from the shadow realm because Ezra went there and started conquering them and they hated that so you can use the shadow realm to fast travel it's a lot like the ways in robert jordan's wheel of time okay uh which you know casting your mind back to the shadowy past of 1995 would have been super current mm-hmm <laughs> So there's very much that, that sense of, like, if we need to get there now, we need to go find some halflings, and they'll help us shadow travel to where we need to go. All right. That, that is kind of an interesting, again, 90, yep. 1995, I could see that being a very cool aspect of that type yeah, of setting. It was not something I'd seen in any other setting at that point. It's It's very slick. They never got to do the full, like setting expansion on the Shadow Realm that I, I can only imagine they wanted to because the, the setting got mothballed uh, before that could happen. So you did mention there was a, a, a core birthright box set yep. and then there was also one for each kingdom or each... Uh... Each, each sub-region. Sub-region, right? okay. So so they, they did release a bunch of settings for this thing. And again, we're talking about 90s era TSR like their product cycle is just absolutely unreal. It's it's the same like intensity of product cycle that maybe some of your listeners only remember from third ed or from fourth ed. It's very it looks very strange now from the very slow product cycle of fifth ed. But um, so so the, the 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 core birthright box set is a is a large box set. It's I don't know like two inches deep, and then there are the, the small box sets 
that are half an inch deep, three quarters of an inch deep, something like that. Um, and so there's, so, so the, the core birthright box set describes the whole region of Enweir and then very lightly describes the rest of the world and then has the domain rules. Then you get uh, Cities of the Sun for Kanasi, you get Havens of the Great Bay for Brecht, you get Tribes of the Heartless, Heartless Wastes for Vos, and my brain is not supplying me the the, the, the subtitle of Rajuric, but Rajuric is also its own small box set. And I think Voss might have just been a single book. I think, it, I think at that point they'd gone down to, you know, all these box sets are really expensive, right? We can just do a single book. Yeah. Um, but I mean, famously at that point, TSR was just hemorrhaging money and no one seemed to be paying attention to the fact that all these box sets were so expensive to make and just weren't earning back what they what they cost at all. Like they really might have been losing money copy over copy, which is not really a business model that is going to do good. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I'm not the most educated economist in the world, but I do know that. Yeah, um, because like I'm looking at my shelf right now, uh, the shelf right next to me, and I've got the Return of the Tomb of Horrors from Second Ed, and I've got Planescape from Second Ed, and I've got City of the, City of the Sun, and like none of those. Well, like now the Planescape box set is fantastically expensive. If you if you want to just have your jaw drop open, I guess go price out a high quality copy of uh, any of the Planescape box sets because they're collector's items now. Mm -hmm. Anyway, way off topic. All right. So I wanted to ask about the other, because again, obviously Birthright wasn't the most successful setting. Yeah. So in addition to these box set, did they do, were there any novels? Were there any other oh, you know, man. content yeah, coming out? Th there were there were several novels that came out and they were really good. They were really, really good. I mean, I haven't read them in substantially over 20 years now, but I was absolutely in love with them when I read them. Just, just instantly in love. But they did also do adventures and then like folios, uh, sort of like first and second adventure folios, 32 page jobbies mm -hmm. um, for individual domains that they thought would especially appeal to PCs. Uh, they didn't get anywhere near all of the domains, but I want to say there's like a dozen of those, maybe a little bit more than a dozen. I haven't actually counted. I don't own all of them. I just own a bunch of them. And then they also did splat books for uh, the book of Magecraft, the book of Priestcraft, and the book of Regency, which is you know a splat book for your arcane casters, black splat book for your divine casters, and a splat book for law holdings. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and the uh, Blood Enemies Abominations of Australia, which is a whole book of Onshalian. More trivia than you wanted. Sorry. No, no, no. Again, this is great. This this is why we're doing this. So we touched on a little bit about the campaign that you're running now or yeah. you're co-DMing. So one of the questions I want to ask is, do you have a favorite memory as a player or a DM? So it could be from that campaign or something in the past. Yeah. Just a moment that you think of that could only have happened in a birthright campaign that just sticks out to you as a favorite memory, a fun thing, intensity, just anything. We've had some really amazing role-playing moments in this campaign. Like the very first thing that happened, the opening scene is the, the paladin PC in in this party, you know, at his coronation, because the the previous monarch, who was reasonably effective but also an absolute bastard, uh, kicked off, and th this PC was the heir, and like the the connections there in the story were sort of odd and off kilter and so we really leaned into that by having the other people in the kingdom didn't really accept him he, he went through the formal investiture ceremony to be the king and so the land knew, knows he's the king but the people aren't really into it and so one of the generals of this domain like raises his banner in revolt and uh, marches away with a third of the army and most of the treasury um and so congratulations, off to the races with not much of an army and no treasury. Good luck. Definitely. Um, 
I imagine, I mean, I could see that as being a very cool and but intense way to start a game, but particularly yeah. if you've played before, some of that, the like, if that's the first time I ever played and that happened, I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. But if I had played before that happened, I'd be like, oh, like the weight of what that really means probably yeah. would set more on my on my conscious. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, like, we've known these players for a really, really long time. We're old, and we've known them for a long time, and so we all like have a, a really good shared context for for what's going on here. And so like, the first major storyline of the campaign was suppressing this revolt. Like the um, this you know, general in rebellion occupied the one major port city that the kingdom has and set up shop there and tried to recruit more armies. But it turns out that he was just not up to the task of really posing a long-term threat. What really happened here is that the, the PC who was the monarch probably couldn't have sort of trivialized the, the whole situation on his own, but when he had the backing of the PC who was the head of the temple and the PC who was the head of one of the guilds and the, the PC who was one of the royal mages, well, they all pooled their resources and it was very much like these four people with pooled resources were up against one person with one person's resources and the predictable thing happened. Sure. And so that didn't end the story because the NPC was captured and they got to really like explore that story about rightful inheritance and someone who felt he'd been passed over for whatever kind of opportunity and and all of this and like the way that general who, who actually knew the paladin pc from a, a shared backstory but that paladin pc was still a foreigner to him he came from like outside of the, the kingdom mm -hmm. and so there was a lot of just no you as a foreigner shouldn't have been raised to be the heir over the rest of us and i knew as soon as you were as soon as that the previous king died that i was going to be in revolt against you that was i just knew that had to happen well it, it, you lost and i'm going to execute you now yes i understand right um, just make sure i understand too you mentioned that that ruling is a part of that bloodline as well yep. so did the general have like a lesser bloodline to have well, a well, so, claim? So he had a different flavor of bloodline, right? So um, the the monarch PC, he didn't, he, he wasn't uh, related by, you know, direct lineage to the king. The king had no, no children. He wasn't, he wasn't the king's son. He had a magical bloodline. You know, his parents, the, 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 the monarch PC's parents, they also had this magical bloodline wherever they are in some distant kingdom. But there's a lot of people running around with enough magical blood to rule a kingdom in, in the setting. You know, it, it's very much in the vein of, well, there's tons of nobles all over, you know, medieval Europe. Some of them are dispossessed nobles. Some of them are royals ruling, I don't know, England. Right, or maybe there's just, maybe some of them are just dukes or uh, countesses or what have you, but there's this you know, magical concept backing up nobility as as a thing, and so that's very much like how that goes. I feel like I haven't I feel like I haven't answered your question, but I'm well, sure. I, if... I think I guess what I was trying to get at is there's an interesting element there that you could play into or you could ignore of does the general have a point that we're deciding our rulers on this bloodline situation, not, right. you know. So, so the, the general did also have a magical bloodline. And so from a pure blood standpoint, they had an equal claim. Okay. Neither of them was especially better than the other on that front in itself. He was just angry about 
the previous monarch naming this outsider as his heir. Mm-hmm. And so like there were there were three generals plus the PC who were about equal in power level within in, in terms of influence in the kingdom prior to the the NPC monarch's death. And so though this was never on camera, it's just what we've discussed is the backstory. Sure. And so the, the, the paladin PC is elevated to the throne and one of the NPC generals remains loyal to the PC paladin. One sort of stays out of it and sends a carefully worded letter of no, no, I'm much too busy over here. Please screw off. And then the third is, you know, the one who's in revolt that I mentioned. Right. So, so it was just a lot of great moments. Mm-hmm. Um, like individual ones, probably sort of the, some of the, the discussion of just legitimacy and what good rulership involves have been some of the most interesting. All right. Well, thank you for sharing. A couple more questions here, and then we'll kind of get to the end is, so if someone is about to start running their first ever birthright campaign, (laughs) do you have a a piece of advice that you would give someone? So I have two pieces of advice. Um, One is, you know, you need to figure out what rule set you're using. If you're going to use fifth edition, my friend Marsupial Manser has done this absolutely amazing conversion that it's, it's just a fan conversion. It's posted for free on his blog. That's why it's not illegal. They, they don't get too mad about free fan conversions. And so he's steadily updating that and, and adding content to it and uh, incorporating playtest feedback from our campaign. So if you want to run in fifth edition, that's a really, really good resource. It's not the only one out there. I haven't done a lot of side-by-side comparison. So maybe you'll find one that really speaks to you that isn't that one, but there's a good one. Second, you're going to want some really good spreadsheets. Get good at Excel or uh, Google Sheets or whatever you got, but um, there's a very real element of this that is spreadsheet questing. And if you have no patience for that, then this is not the campaign for you. Um, it's good to know that going in. It really is. There's there's a lot of number crunching. It can be super fun because you get to see the numbers go up. It's fun when the numbers go up. That's what I know about D&D and gaming in general. As a literally professional game designer, it's fun when the numbers go up. Nice. <laughs> um, and so you're going to need to track your your income in gold bars and regency you need to track your upkeep costs in gold bars and regency you're going to need to track all the different holdings you have which might extend into other domains and provinces the pc who is running the the temple in our campaign uh, he's running a, a sect of a faith and so that sect has holdings in about four different domains so he is is this it's this mat, massive like international splinter sect of a larger temple that's just a thing and so he can exert influence in all these other provinces right because of that but the spreadsheet is absolutely crucial the the dm can absolutely support the players in managing it the dm is probably going to want to also have some amount of spreadsheet support for npc domains the alternative to that is that you um the, the npc domains become very static and any resources that you're throwing at opposing the pc's actions are coming from nowhere instead of being actively tracked and that's not good okay. it doesn't feel good as the dm because you do become aware that the pcs are spending earned money and you're spending fake money and so like figuring out what's a good amount to spend to oppose their actions becomes very hard. So right, the spreadsheet work doesn't have to be soul crushing. You can decide that only this, only these one or two NPCs are actually engaged in the story right now. So the rest can be sort of botted for a while. It doesn't matter that they're not, they're interested in things other than opposing the PCs. So fine. If the PCs are going to pick a fight with an NPC who is sort of on cruise control, 
well, then I guess you're handling them too, and you'll just have to spin something up. But yeah, that's that's the core of my advice. If you have the option of a, a co-GM, you know, a, a, a person you can split the role-playing and logistical duties with, do that. Yeah. It's real good. Birthright really, really rewards it because this is a campaign where you can absolutely have three or four sessions of just social encounters and it feels great the story moves forward in satisfying ways it's fine there's no reason you wouldn't do that okay um so yeah all right and then uh, we'll flip the script so you're the player who's never played yep. Pothrop before you're gonna replay what advice would you give them Oof. Um, they also need to care about the spreadsheet quest. Okay. Uh, it, it really is a huge part of play. It's one of the things that really sets Birthright apart. It's not like EVE Online level intensive, not by a long shot. And it's actually much less intensive than some of the uh, domain management add-ons for D&D and Pathfinder that have come out in the past 10 years or so. Okay. Um, like if you're comparing it to Kingmaker or, or the um, ultimate campaigns supplement that is basically Kingmaker for Pathfinder 1, it is it, it's wispy in comparison. It is near ultralight. It's very dense, folks. It is ultralight only in comparison. I want to be very clear. Gotcha. But yeah, I don't know. It, I, I give the same advice as I would in, in any setting. You're going to get out of it what you put in. So if you invest a lot of care and attention in your role play, it's going to pay dividends. Everyone at the table will be better. If if everyone cares, everyone's better and more interested. That's how I feel about it. Very, very cool. Now, I think Birthright, because it is so drastically different than any of the three I've done so far and any of the ones that I'm familiar with, I want to kind of give you the sort of a bonus question of, is there anything else about the setting that we didn't touch on yet that you do think is something important that someone would, might want to know? So it's sort of a cleanup. What did oh. we miss? What should we also throw in, if anything, uh, before we actually wrap up? Huh? So uh, I, I just want to say that I think the setting does verisimilitude and social action, interaction with stakes that can be won or lost and the game can go on even if you lose better than really any other official D&D setting that I can think of. If I had to put one in competition with it, it'd be Planescape. Okay. For totally different reasons, but same kind of same net outcome of really strong social stakes and you can lose without catastrophic failure, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that is an interesting thing from, from in quote unquote, traditional D and D. If you get to a fight and you lose, generally it means you're dead. Yeah. And in this, it just means that you have lost part of a holding or some resources, or, you yep. know, it's putting in a worse yep. situation. That is a different spin on combat. Yeah. By, by having a lot of stuff, you've got a lot to lose. Very, and so you cool. can like stage your failure until you can have, have some kind of comeback. Definitely makes sense. All right. So um, other than going out and finding some of these box sets, uh, is yep. there any place you would send someone to get more information about Birthright? So again, you mentioned your friend's website and we can throw yep. links if you're comfortable. Is there anywhere else people could go to look online? Or... Uh, so so there's a, a fan site called birthright.net that has been uh, keeping the flame alive since 3.0. They're, they're great. And, and then um, the Piazza forums also have a, a, a pretty robust birthright forum, which I, I definitely recommend for good conversation about birthright. Okay. Um, I want to say that PDFs are available on the DMs Guild of most or all of the birthright content. Okay. So that's that's a big help. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, Brandon, thank you so very much for hanging out with me tonight. I really appreciate your insights and your expertise on birthrighting. I learned so much about this setting that I clearly knew nothing else about. Uh, but where can people go if they want to interact more with you, uh, social media, websites, anywhere you would want people to come hang out, try to find you online? Oh, Michael, it's been a ton of fun talking to you. I would love to have your listeners 
come talk to me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. I also write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brendastoddard.com and my Patreon is Brenda Stoddard. Excellent. Well, thank you so very much. And for that, we will say good night and we'll see hopefully the listeners uh, further on this journey as we travel through the realms. We have a lot more places to visit yet and, and hopefully people are enjoying the, the journey with me. So thanks and good night. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.